You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe. John Tolkien, New York Red Bulls defender. When you watch Messi, what stands out to you? What makes him so great? You look at him and you're like, you just admire it. You know, it, it looks so effortless from him. And he's always got a smile on his face. And it's like he's a little kid with the ball at his feet. And anybody who's played the game, you know, can really admire that. You know, although it is Messi coming to our hometown, you know, we need these three points and started with a win last week. And, you know, now we want to go on a little run here. Ten games left and we've got a, a bunch of hard games coming up. So, um, you know, points are the only things on our mind yeah it's messy but you know we we need those points um to make that a 14th straight year you're listening to pat o'keefe on 98.7 espn that's how we kicked off the show today that was a fun conversation with john tolkien who is 21 years old is a professional soccer player on the rise for the new york red bulls but he's got a job to do on saturday and he's going to be involved in the sporting events of the summer, I think, in the New York metropolitan area. Certainly the hottest ticket in town. Lionel Messi and Inter-Miami visiting the New York Red Bulls at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey, Saturday night at 730. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, you know, the hottest ticket in town isn't at City Field. As we know, it is not going to be a late September Yankees-Red Sox or even Yankees-Orioles series for the American League East at Yankee Stadium. No. That is sports. That is baseball in 2023 in New York City, the hottest ticket in town. And it's not even the soccer team that actually plays at Yankee Stadium. It's the New York Red Bulls against Messi at Red Bull Arena. It's going to be some scene on Saturday night. It was fun talking about that with John Tolkien. Also, Rich Samini, thanks to him for joining us the first hour to talk about the Jets' final preseason game, their final dress rehearsal as they take on the Giants for the uh, last preseason game before the season opener. 1-800-919-3776. On the Yankees for now, but anything on your mind. And um, the base running struggles in that second inning where the Yankees just completely run themselves out of an inning. Kyle Higashioka thrown out at third base when he didn't have to try to advance. And then the very next batter at the plate, Oswald Peraza, gets picked off first base. And just like that, the Yankees literally run themselves out of an inning. So, Aaron Boone, why does your team struggle on the base paths? It comes from a place of working hard at second to try and get that good jump off the bat, right? You want to be able to get that good read, get that good jump but obviously there's a little nuance to it and you got to make sure you see the ball through I will say this I think I said it before like it is happening a lot in our game it happened a lot when I played too because when I played I'd see it all the time and it was the same thing you know like man it's happening all the time and it's just one of those plays where I think guys are working so hard to get a good jump they get themselves in trouble in, in no man's land and it's a bad play talk to Higgy about it and it's happened to Higgy twice now and and it's one of those things that you got to strike that balance between knowing, yeah, of course you want to get a good jump, but you got to take a beat to know exactly where the ball is. I am comfortable in his thought process on where the guys were, but in his haste, he just go. And it's obviously something we got to do better. I mean, God, this comes from a place of working hard. It's like he's a fourth grader who is really struggling at math, but it's okay because he's really working hard. He doesn't get it but he's really working hard. This is Major League Baseball. Come on. This is the New York Yankees. It reminds me of the movie Christmas Vacation, right? Chevy Chase, he puts all the lights on his house. He gets the whole family out in the front yard in the freezing cold. His parents, his kids, his wife, his in-laws, they do the drum roll, and he's ready to light up the house. And he plugs it in, 
and nothing happens. And he's trying to figure out what happened. And all of a sudden, after a few seconds, everybody realizes that what he has just done is a complete dud. And his in-laws are giving him a hard time. And his daughter, Juliette Lewis, sticks up for her dad and says, come on, Grandma, he worked really hard. And you guys remember the punchline? Remember what the, the father-in-law said? Have you seen that movie, Joe, Harvey? You guys you guys old enough to see that movie? It's my favorite Christmas movie of all time. And what, so what's the punchline? I'm, I'm freezing my baguettes off here. Well, that was one of them. But when she goes, come on, Grandma, he worked really hard. His father-in-law goes, so do washing machines. <laughs> That's what that reminded me of. Aaron, I worked really hard. Come on, Aaron. He worked really hard. So do washing machines. That's what that reminds me. It, it comes from a place of working hard. It's stupid. You know what it comes from? It comes from a place of stupidity. It just the, the whole team is just in a malaise. And this is the second time. Even Boone knows it's the second time he's done it. It's the second time for Agashioka. It's the second time for Peraza. You 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 should do that once at the most. I'm freezing my bag. Gets off. That's a good one, too. Let's go to Cam on Long Island. Cam, what's going on? And I want to comment about the uh, the pitcher who threw, like, four runs in, like, six pitches in, like, the, the fourth inning, which was, like, crazy. Um, the TV probably didn't show him, like, warming up, but the guy was throwing some gas. He was accurate, like, 90-mile-an-hour pitches. I was hyped. I thought that he was going to – pick up where the other uh, pitcher left off and he just caught some um, some hot batters. But after he got booed off, I was like, why did he even put him in? Because the other pitcher was doing good. And to go off of the comment you just said, usually when people are working hard, they usually don't have it upstairs in the mind. So you have to work hard to make up for your intelligence that allows you to be a little bit more efficient. So, um, you know, you can take it from there. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Cam. Tommy Canely was the pitcher who came on to replace Johnny Brito. Canely's problem is he throws the changeup 80% of the time. He's got a very good changeup, but they said today he throws 80% changeups over the last certain amount of appearances, and he's really, really struggled. And teams are just waiting on the changeup now. I mean, he's given up home run after home run every time he's out there. He's got to change that up. He's got to mix that up a little bit. But it's the the bullpen all season long, even when the Yankees were eight games. Remember when the Yankees were eight games above 500 and we were complaining about this team? Remember that? Wouldn't you sign for eight games above 500 now? That was, and that wasn't even their high watermark. I think they had 11 games above 500 at one point. And even then, it just, you knew that this wasn't a great team, but they were, you know, holding it together. And the whole idea was to hold the fort without judge. And they kind of did that. But it's almost like they exerted all of their energy, all of their capacities to and, – and by holding the fort without judge, I think they were like three games below 500 with him. But they've been a lot worse than that since he's come back. Through no fault of judge, really, especially this week. He's been carrying them. But, I mean, we can't – you can't completely absolve the manager. I understand there's a pecking order here. You know, this. Th there's an institutional problem with the Yankees. And I had a caller call last night and say, who do the Yankees fans think they are that they demand their team to be good? You can expect your team to be good when they have a payroll of $280 million, which is more than every other team in Major League Baseball outside of the city of New York. Then the expectations for your team to be a contending team are fair. And you know what? 
they're fair to the fan who's spending 300 bucks to watch a Yankee game. One of the reasons, now there's many reasons. There's the radio deal. There's the cable TV deal on Yes. There's a lot of reasons, the merchandising deals, why the Yankees have more money than everyone else. They're in the largest market. The Yankees, you go to ballparks elsewhere throughout the country, you're paying a fraction of what it costs to watch the Yankees. The Yankees mark up every single price they possibly can. The whole business model is designed to get you in their ballpark and spend money, and that money is largely reinvested into the team. So for that, I will give them credit, but they're pushing a lot of the cost onto the consumer. So if they're doing that, then the consumer has every right to be upset when the team falls significantly short of expectations because they feel they have a hand in this. You're walking into that ballpark, $40 to park, $200 for tickets, $150 for food and beverage. You're three, $400 for an afternoon at the ballpark with your family. And that's not like that everywhere else. That's like that at Yankee Stadium. That's part of the outrage. But that's why they've also been able to be successful. Now they're not using that to their advantage to be successful. It's all come to a head here. So it starts at the top. You're not going to do anything. The owner's not going anywhere. It's his team. You can't force him out, all right? You can hope he can change, but you cannot force him out. So then you got to go to the next rung, and that's the guy making the decisions and putting this roster together. And it's a flawed roster, and we have discussed all of the ways in which it's flawed over the last couple of weeks regarding Brian Cashman. But because we've focused so much on Cashman, Aaron Boone has kind of gotten a free pass over the last couple of weeks. And it was a game like It's funny because last night, last night felt great if you're a Yankee fan, if you even still cared. But you probably did because you're happy that Judge hit three home runs. And then a night after that, you're immediately drawn right back in. And it's a stark reminder of how Aaron Boone has to hold some culpability here too. Because those types of mistakes on the base paths, careless, not knowing the situation, not smart baseball, that is the manager's job. And I keep hearing there's only so much the manager can do. There's only, But can he at least do that? If the manager is going to be absolved of all of this and he's just an innocent bystander, then why have a manager? Why not just have Cashman and his analytics department fill out the lineup card and tack it on the inside of the dugout? And let's play ball. I mean, the manager has to have some responsibility here. I understand it's not ultimately his fault. It's above Aaron Boone. But he does get paid. He does have responsibilities. Last I checked. 1-800-919-3776. We'll get to the Mets. Um, They didn't play today, but made some news off the field. That's going to make a lot of Mets fans from an earlier generation very happy. It's Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN New York. You worked really hard, Grandma. So do washing machines. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Pat O'Keefe back with you on 98.7 ESPN New York. So earlier on Thursday, 
The Mets and Steve Cohen announced that Doc Gooden and Daryl Strawberry next season will both have their numbers retired at City Field. Gooden's number 16, Strawberry's number 18 as Cohen continues under his new stewardship to honor the history of the Mets franchise. And obviously Doc and Daryl were the two central figures. They're always going to be connected. They were the two central figures for that franchise's most recent World Series championship. They were equally dynamic and electric, one of them as a pitcher, one of them as an outfielder and a power-hitting slugger. And they each fell into trouble numerous times off the field, even before it ended up costing them portions of their careers. First, it cost them production. Then it cost them their spots with the Mets. Then it cost them actual seasons when they had to serve suspensions from Major League Baseball. And then ultimately both resurfaced with the Yankees, regrouped, continued to fall in and out of trouble, helped the Yankees win a couple of more World Series championships. But from the Mets' perspective, and I know they both have more rings than with the Yankees than they do with the Mets, but they're Mets, and they're all-time great Mets. And if you weren't around for the beginnings of their careers, especially to have two guys like that come up in back-to-back years. I mean, Strawberry was the first one. He was the number one overall pick in the draft, and he made his debut early in the season in 1983 when he was 21 years old. And it was a Mets team that was starting to ascend, and he comes up that year, 26 home runs, 74 RBIs. The next season, 84, his first full season, 26 home runs, 97 RBIs, 27 stolen bases, 85, 29 homers, 26 stolen bases, 86, 27 homers, 93 stolen bases, and all this time, OPSs in the high eights, or 947, 981, 911, great arm in right field. I mean, the guy was, he was something to watch. I mean, he was the prototypical superstar athlete and doing it at such a young age. I mean, when the Mets won the World Series in 1986, Strawberry is 24 years old. Gooden, who came up a year later in 1984, was younger than Strawberry. He was actually more electric than Strawberry. I mean, Dwight Gooden's first two years, well, let's say three years, because the third year is when he helped the Mets win the World Series. But of his first three years, 1986, when the Mets won it all, that was actually his worst of his first three years. But think about this. He comes up in 1984, okay? He goes, and this is back at a time, I know win-loss record does not matter in today's game, especially wins back in 1984, 85, 86. The win-loss record was very important. Wins was a very important stat. Because these guys went seven, eight, nine innings every game. And Gooden, as a 19-year-old rookie, went 17-9 and nine with a 2.60 earned run average. He struck out 276 batters in 218 innings. Now think about that. Strikeout numbers, I mean, look at Garrett Cole's strikeout numbers. He strikes out well over a man in inning too. But Garrett Cole, and this doesn't take, take anything away from him or any pitchers that dominate in the strikeout category today. But batters today 
strike out infinitely more than they did then because they're swinging for the fences. They're working on their launch angle. Hitters of today go up there with the approach that an out is an out is an out. When Gooden was pitching in the 80s, that's not how they approached it. Most of Major League Baseball hitters just tried to put the bat on the ball and hope that good things would happen. And with that mindset, Gooden struck out 276 batters in 218 innings. But it was his next year, 1985, when he was 20 years old. He went 24-4 and with a 1.53 earned run average, 16 complete games. He pitched 276 innings, and he struck out 268 batters. I mean, the guy over his first three years, he was on a trajectory to be the greatest pitcher in the history of baseball. And then, of course, both of them ran into problems off the field with drugs and alcohol abuse and run-ins with the law during their playing days, after their playing days. And it ultimately, and yes, they did regroup. I mean, Gooden was suspended from baseball in 1995 for the entire season, came back with the Yankees in 1996. He pitched until the year 2000. Strawberry was never actually suspended for a full season, but he had to regroup with the St. Paul Saints in 1995 before George Steinbrenner signed him. And Strawberry left the Mets in 1990. He was still playing for the Yankees in 1999. So they were both able to salvage the tail ends of their careers. But it wasn't, you know, it, it left fans wondering just what kind of careers these two guys could have been. It really was an amazing, I don't want to call it a coincidence because the Mets were picking very high in the draft. And Frank Cashin, the general manager of the Mets, drafted both of them. So it wasn't a coincidence that he drafted both of them, but the similarities of how their careers and lives went from the time they were drafted over the next couple of decades is very, very interesting. Dynamic players, young, talented, troubled, champions in New York, both had to leave the Mets franchise anyway, and you were kind of left wondering what their careers could have been. I mean, Daryl Strawberry should have been a 500 home run guy easily, easily. I mean, by the time he was 25 years old, let me see, he had he had 140 home runs by the time he was 25 years old, and he finished his career with 335 home runs and an even 1,000 runs batted in. Doc Gooden was on the Michael K. show earlier today, so the Mets will honor both of them next year. Um, Gooden was on with Michael and Peter and uh, spoke first and foremost about getting his number retired next year. When it becomes official, like you hear rumors that it may happen, you hear guys talk about it, but you never know until it's official. But once it became official and I got the call today, you know, you look back and I never really got choked up or, you know, lost the words at any time through my up downs. But this specific time, I got a little choked up and got a little teary eyed because it was a moment where you're like, wow, that's the highest honor you can get from a ball club. That means they appreciate everything you did on the field and you're being rewarded for that. And it's a celebration that I get to have with, with the fans, my teammates that I play with, my friends. 
family and all my loved ones. And it's just a great, great honor. And so I look back at all the things that I've able to accomplish in my career, all the people that paved the way for me to get to that point, all the people that supported me through my down times. And it's just kind of emotional. But it was a great thing. And um, I'm very honored and very humbled for this opportunity that is finally here. And um, I thank you guys for all the support as well. It's it's great that it has this kind of ending with the Mets because they're beloved for helping to lead this franchise to their most recent World Series championship in 1986. And for a while, they were vilified because fans felt that with the amount of talent they had on that team, that they should have won more. And in the case of both Strawberry and Gooden, those are two examples of talent squandered. But they had a lot of really, really rough times because of this these demons off the field, this substance abuse, alcohol, and drugs. And they've spoken openly about it for years, both of them. Now, there have been times, and if you saw the 30 for 30 that ESPN did several years back on Doc and Darrell, there have been many times where these two teammates who are connected forever, you really can't mention one without the other, there are times where they haven't seen eye to eye. And Michael asked Doc if he's spoken with Darrell yet. We talked about maybe three weeks ago when it was mentioned that it's probably going to happen, but it wasn't official yet. We talked about it and kind of showed our glory for each other, and we talked about, you know, our times, and we talked about our friendship, you know, because it's been kind of rocky at times, but today is great. We have a good brotherhood today. Tomorrow, I don't know, you know. <laughs> I'm kidding, but, uh, you know, I love Daryl, and I, I never forget when my mom was sick before she passed. Daryl was living in Orlando, Florida, which is about an hour away. He drove down to pray for my mom and spend the day with my mom. Those are things that really sticked out, and, you know, Daryl's a true friend, and I love him and I'm sure he loves me as well. But I'm sure we'll talk, and when he comes to tell, we'll get together and we'll have a nice fight over it and a nice celebration to talk about it. I'm very, very happy for him, too, because we basically have lived the same life. I mean, all ups and downs, all the same, you know, rehabs, the same teams, won the World Series with the Mets and Yankees, all this stuff, our story is basically identical. So to have this moment and this announcement on the same day means a lot to me. They both came up 13, 14 years before Derek Jeter, who a lot more people who are listening to this program saw his career, especially the beginning of it, than the beginning of Doc and Darrell's careers. And Jeter is a very good example of someone who came up and pretty much enjoyed success immediately. Maybe the first couple of months of his rookie season in 1996, he wasn't an all-star. But by the end of the year, he was hitting second in that Yankees lineup, and he was in the middle of so many rallies for a team that won the World Series championship. And he was 21 years old when that season started. Just to give it some context, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden, at that same age or even younger when they came up, were so far and away better than what Derek Jeter was at that age. And that's how good these guys were. Jeter is who so many people that are around my age, 44 years old, 45 years old, um, a little older, who saw Jeter's entire career start to finish. Jeter is the guy you point to as the guy who came up 21 years old, knew what he was doing right away, and was a quote-unquote star from day one. These guys were bigger stars. These guys were better players from day one. Now, the biggest difference between a guy like Jeter and those two guys was, you know, day 50, day 100, day 1,000. Jeter, as we know, kept it going his entire career. Not everybody is able to do that. These two guys were not able to do that, but it's really um, it's really nice to see it have this conclusion with the Mets because you talk about what-ifs, and you hate what-ifs in life, and you hate what-ifs in, in the world, and the, those two guys have a lot of what-ifs 
regarding their careers, and most of them revolve around their time with the Mets. Almost all of them revolve around their time with the Mets. I mean, when they were with the Yankees, when they had moved on, they were still contributing later in their careers. I mean, Strawberry was instrumental to the 96 Yankees. Gooden, by the time the playoffs rolled around that year, his arm had kind of gotten tired and he wasn't a big factor in the playoffs. But earlier that season, when he was on the verge of losing his spot in the rotation, he went out and pitched a no-hitter against the Seattle Mariners. So they both contributed to that Yankee team, but it wasn't the same. I mean, when they were with the Mets and they did it, at that's the thing, they did it at such a young age, which may have been part of their downfall. Too much too soon. But the fact that they're both going to be immortalized at City Field with their numbers retired is a really nice conclusion for both of them who had great runs, shorter than hoped, but great runs with the Mets franchise. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, some interesting developments on the NBA front and the Knicks' never-ending quest to find a star to place at the head of the franchise. Does a new name perhaps enter the arena? We'll talk about that as we continue on 98.7 ESPN New York. I'm freezing my baguettes off here. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, so this week, ESPN.com is rolling out some NBA content. Training camps begin about a month from now. First preseason games are the first week or so of October. Opening night for the Knicks is October 25th against the Boston Celtics. And away we go. Um... On ESPN.com, they have their panel of those who cover the NBA give their projected order of finish for the teams in each conference. And they separated them into the contenders. And then the next group was called the play-in group. And then the final group is called the bottom five. They did that for both conferences. But we'll stick with the Eastern Conference uh, for the purpose of discussing this through a Knicks uh, lens. So the Eastern Conference contenders, they have the Celtics at number one with, a, with 55 wins, 27 losses. Milwaukee at number two with 54 wins. Cleveland at number three with 50 wins, followed by Philadelphia in fourth with 47 wins. And then Miami and the Knicks in fifth and sixth place with 46 wins apiece. So they project the Knicks to finish in sixth place in the Eastern Conference, which just by looking at this right away, if this plays out the way they have predicted and the Knicks are in sixth place and the Cavaliers are in third place, well, then we have the same first-round matchup that the Knicks had last year. And if I'm the Knicks, I take my chances with that matchup again, the way they manhandled Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen, and the rest of the Cavaliers. But what it also tells you is... There is not a great disparity between the win total of especially the bottom four teams in that group. Now, I think Boston, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Boston, whatever order you want to put the two of them in, those, I agree, are and should be the consensus top two teams during the regular season, barring a catastrophic injury. This is all barring a catastrophic injury. So you could put those two aside. But you look at the teams they have in the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth position. Cleveland, 50 wins. Philadelphia, 47. Miami, 46. Knicks, 46. Those four teams, according to the projections, are separated by four wins, which means it's basically a crapshoot 
among the Cavs, Sixers, Heat, and Knicks. Now you look at each of the four teams. We already discussed the Cavs and how the Knicks match up with them favorably after what we saw in the first round of the playoffs. The 76ers are teetering on being an absolute mess. So right now the projection for Philadelphia is 47-35. and 35. If James Harden all of a sudden has a change of heart tomorrow, comes back, plays the way he did last year, leads the NBA in assists again, then they probably bump up to the 50-52 to 52 win range. But who thinks that's going to happen? A far more likely scenario is Harden doesn't report or he tries to force his way out of town and he's completely disruptive within the team and their season gets derailed as a result of it. Well, if that happens, then they're not going to win 47 games. They're going to come back to the pack. And then you have Miami, which is very interesting because Miami's a very difficult team to predict because there's the Damian Lillard thing out there. So you have to kind of hedge your bet a little bit. Yeah, you think Miami would win this amount of games if they do get Lillard. And if Miami gets Damian Lillard for a package that centers around Tyler Hero, I would argue that they could be, especially with that coach and Jimmy Butler not having to carry so much of the load and with Bam Adebayo anchoring the middle, I would argue that they're the best team in the Eastern Conference. So you have to factor that possibility with the possibility that Miami stays who they are right now. And who they are right now, despite their great run in the postseason last year, is a team that just got into the playoffs as the number eight seed last year. And then you have the Knicks. And if you heard our show on Monday night when Bobby Marks was with me, and Marks was the one who, when the schedule came out, predicted in some of his analysis the Knicks would represent the Eastern Conference in the NBA Finals because of their consistency and their continuity. From the team president, Leon Rose, to the head coach, Tom Thibodeau, to the fact that they have 13 players from last year's team that went to the second round returning. They have all five starters returning. Really, the only rotation player they don't have coming back from last year is Obi Toppin. And... The reason for that, they would tell you, is because they replaced him with someone who they like better in Dante DiVincenzo. So that's a long way of saying that the goal for the Knicks should be a top three finish in the Eastern Conference. There's no reason for that not to be the goal. I'm not saying they should get it. I'm not saying they're clearly the number three team. But the Knicks are in this bucket with Cleveland, Philadelphia, which we don't know what's going to happen with them. Miami, we don't know what's going to happen with them. And then there's the Knicks. One of those four teams is going to be the third seed in the Eastern Conference. So last year was not a one-off for the Knicks. You shouldn't think of it as that. There is, even though I know there, there's been some disappointment that the Knicks didn't go out and significantly change their roster. But maybe just maybe in an offseason where there wasn't an obvious huge move to be made, maybe there is something to the continuity and the consistency, and you're there, and you give yourself a shot by getting a top three seed, and who knows? The teams around you are all, there are potential issues with all of them. Milwaukee, their stars have gotten hurt in each of the last two postseasons. Last year was Chris Middleton. This year it was Giannis. Boston is putting a lot of eggs in the Chris Stapp's Porzingis basket. 
which is always risky. Cleveland, you manhandled them. Philadelphia is a ticking time bomb with James Harden still employed by them. And Miami is the unknown. You know, I think on paper, Miami's not as talented as the Knicks, but they have Jimmy Butler, they have Eric Spolstra, and they have Bam Adebayo. Now, an interesting story that was reported by the New York Times on Thursday, an interview that Giannis Antetokounmpo gave with them, and he says that he will not sign an extension when he becomes eligible to do so next month. Now, Giannis this year will be in the third year of a five-year, $228 million contract. But that five-year contract actually has a player option in year number five. So Giannis is only under team control for this coming season and next season. After that, he can opt out and he can become a free agent. Now, next month, he'll be eligible to sign a three-year, $173 million extension. So that would pay him about an average of $57.7 million a year. But Giannis says in the interview, he was very candid. He says that the Bucks organization still has to prove to him that their commitment to winning an NBA title equals his commitment. And that's not going to be easy for Milwaukee. Yes, they have Giannis and Good players tend to want to play with stars, but they're also in one of the smallest markets in the NBA that stars would never want to willingly come to if it wasn't for the presence of Giannis. And you look at the core of that team, it is aging. Now, how rapidly is it aging? I don't know. But Chris Middleton has had injury problems the last year and a half. Drew Holiday has a lot of wear and tear on his body, and Brooke Lopez, the same. And even Giannis is getting there. But Giannis has had some, un, I, I don't want to say, the, the, the he hasn't had the nagging injury type. He hasn't had the habitual injury type. Like last year, for example, he tried to take a charge. He fell down. He hurt his back. All right, that was more of the result of an impact or of a collision, not something that's habitual. Now, Giannis will be 31 years old, turning 32, at the start of the 2025-26 season. So a good four or five years of his prime. And Giannis is the kind of guy, if he gets to the last year of his contract, now, I don't think anything's going to happen this year. They're they, they, they're basically have already committed to running it back with the same core. They feel that, they have a new head coach, uh, Adrian Griffin, but they feel that the reason they didn't, get out of the first round last year and make a run was because of Giannis's injury. They lost game one because of it. They fell behind two games to one because Giannis wasn't there for two and a half of the first three games. And then when he did come back, Jimmy Butler was unconscious for two fourth quarters in a row and their season was over. They feel that that was a fluke and they're running it back again. But if they don't win a championship this year or make a deep run this year, it'll be very interesting to see what Giannis's mindset is going into what would be the final year of his contract. Now, if we get to next offseason and Giannis is still saying that he's not going to sign an extension with Milwaukee, well, then that will make things very interesting. And Giannis doesn't have the injury history of a Joel Embiid. He doesn't have the physical shortcomings, and he's short, of Damian Lillard. Giannis fits everywhere. 
in New York with the Knicks in the starting lineup with Jalen Brunson, with R.J. Barrett, with whoever would be left over that you didn't have to give to Milwaukee along with your treasure trove of draft picks. But Giannis is also a guy who respects the organization enough that if he gets to the final year of his contract and he feels strongly that he wants to move on, he'll tell them. He's not going to leave them high and dry like LeBron did to the Cavaliers in 2010. So, yeah, you might not have to wait till 2025 to make a play on Giannis. You might be able to do it a year from now. And everybody's wondering why the Knicks continue to be so patient. Have they been too patient? And all of these stars have warts, and there's not one perfect guy that you could go after. There's your perfect guy. That's him right there. Keep an eye on Giannis Antetokounmpo. Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Four minutes. This uh, show has flown by, as it often does. Another disappointing loss for the Yankees. Get you set for the Jets and the Giants' final preseason game. Aaron Rodgers making his debut on Saturday. And thanks to Mr. Harvey Cruz, we even talk some soccer. The New York Red Bulls against Lionel Messi and Inter-Miami Saturday night at Red Bull Arena in New Jersey. Let's go to Buddha in the Bronx, who's been waiting patiently. Buddha, what's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, Pat? You know, um, I wanted to talk about the Jets and the Giants game briefly. But I just got to give you a list of names as it pertains to the Yankees. You know, it's Nettles, it's Dent, Randolph, Munson, Pinella, Jeter, O'Neal, uh, Reggie, Jeffries, Jackson, and there's a few more. You know what all these guys have in common, Pat? Those guys have all won championships. Definitely that. But I also say, you know, in the postseason, they became like Otis. They were elevators. You understand what I'm talking about? I do. And, um, you know, Cashman and Boone, to a certain extent, are low-hanging fruit. But I do also feel like Aaron Judge gets a pass here. And um, in the regular season, he's a better player than any of those guys I just mentioned. But in the postseason, not so much. You know, I'm not saying they shouldn't have signed him. Obviously, they should have. You had to do that. But, you know, with all of the stuff that I hear about how the Yankees haven't done this and this person hasn't performed and Rizzo and and LeMayhew and and, and Stanton, could you give me his signature postseason moment? I can't. And I think I mentioned this earlier this week, and uh, he doesn't have one yet. And and, and that's a problem. You know what I mean? I'll just say that, and that's a problem. Like I said, you know, I don't want to talk about the injuries and everything that run into the wall. That was a freak accident and all that, but... You know, all this stuff about that he's not being pitched to and all that. I remember when Reggie wasn't not being pitched to. You know what Reggie did? He crowded the plate, and he forced you to throw a strike. And he came up big in those big spots. I'm sorry. All these players, everybody nowadays, players, managers, coaches, these guys all get a pass. There's always some reason why they can't perform at their highest level in the highest moment. I'm sorry. That's how I feel, and you can't tell me nothing different. But anyway, moving forward. Now, when we look at this Jets and Giants game, you know, it's become a bit interesting, you know, as much as a preseason game can be. You know, I'm glad Rodgers is playing. You know, I need to see him, how he checks in and out of plays. I need to see whether the offensive line is as sieve as been advertised. And also, 
the Giants have a measured advantage in their coaching staff, and I mean this on both sides of the ball. You know, Rob Sala has improved the defense, and they got great, you know, last year at two certain points. But I feel like the Giants, as a unit, they're more buttoned down and they're more cohesive. So, you know, this is a big year for Robert Sala, and this is an opportunity for him to elevate himself as much as a preseason game could show that. You know, um, he, a lot of times he's looked like the equipment manager. Or, like, uh, I remember you remember the show Coach, like Dauber? There's been times he's looked <laughs> like him. And, you know, I, I really feel like this is a time, and this is, even if a preseason game ever meant anything, there can't be any timeout problems. There can't be any in-and-out substitution problems on defense. He's got to step up because Brian Dayball has put the light on him and made him look as an inferior coach. You understand what I'm saying? I do. Buddha, I'm actually more concerned. i got to wrap up the show, so thanks for the call. I, I, I agree with those points. I don't necessarily agree with them pertaining to this game on Saturday. But in the regular season – the Giants play the Jets then. And if everything goes the way we expect it to go this season, it's going to be a very big game for both of those teams. That's where the spotlight will be shown on both head coaches, but specifically Salah, because he hasn't proven it yet. Brian Dayball, the Giants between Dayball and Wink Martindale had the coaching advantage in pretty much every game last season. That's how they were able to get to the playoffs and win a playoff game with a team that top to bottom wasn't all that talented and also wasn't all that deep. Thanks to all the callers tonight. Also, Rich Samini and John Tolkien, our guests, Joe Leo and Harvey Cruz, producing the show. Great job by you guys. I'll be back here tomorrow night from 7 to 10. Hope you'll join me um, as we continue to get you set for that preseason game between the Giants and the Jets on Saturday night here on ESPN New York.